Hello, welcome to Ness and Dorma, your chat about 80s and 90s football. I am Lee, and it's lovely to be back with you after a little bit of not being around. Even more lovely to have back are the two people that we've got helping us to reflect on Escape to Victory in this episode. Reflect on that celluloid and football wonder that is that film. Firstly, we've got the author of The Pride of the Lionesses returning to us after a long while since... She joined us for the episode on Luton Town. It's Carrie Dunn. Hello, Carrie. Hello. Congratulations on the book being nominated, by the way. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, um, exciting. Um, I found out about it like um, the day we went into lockdown, um, which was the evening they were going to launch everything at a big party. Party was cancelled. <laughs> um, and now the shortlist and the award ceremony have also been postponed. But yes, long listing is very exciting. So thank, thank you very much. And remind the listeners what it's long listed for. Um, sports book of the year, the football book category. Fantastic stuff. And also joining us, completing the escape committee of the will, if you will, is uh, the king of the MBM and author of the title, the story of the first division, and semi-regular person of this parish. It's Scott Murray. Hello, Scott. Hi, mate. How are you? I'm very good. Yeah. How's everybody's lockdown going? Yeah. <laughs> I just does it? Yeah. Fantastic. So we're going to talk about Escape to Victory because, well, we kind of love it and, you know, all bets are off in terms of making sense in this world now. So why not talk about Escape to Victory on an old football Mm. podcast? It makes perfect sense to us. So in terms of Escape to Victory, the three of us have come together because we love this um, film. Can you remember, um, Carrie, when when it first became into your life? Do you have a kind of active memory of it entering your life? I don't have one particular memory I remember watching it as as a small child with my dad and yeah you say that we all love this film um it's the kind of film that people kind of wheel out as a guilty pleasure I genuinely love this film properly love it and I'm fully aware of all the things that people say about it the criticisms that can be aimed at it but this is a deep uh, heartfelt long-lasting love I adore this film <laughs> What about you, Scott? Do you have any kind of memory memory of it coming in your life? No, I'm I'm exactly like Carrie here. That I can't really remember. I can remember the iconic um, arm breaking scene, and I can sort of vaguely remember watching it when I was young, and remember that, and remember that there was this film with Stallone and and Pele in it, and how weird that was. Um, and it was only kind of late on um, when I'd watched it again, maybe about 10 years ago. And I was expecting it to be just appalling because that's kind of the received wisdom, isn't yes, it? That so this it is, is a yeah, yeah. terrible film. And I thought, you know, it's all right. It's not too bad. And then I wrote a piece on it maybe three or four years ago. So I watched it again for that. And I thought, you know what? This is a lot better than I remember it. Um, and I watched it again ahead of this. And... I'm I'm now fully with Carrie. I think it's a it's an, a, an amazing film and it's really underrated. And it was just something when I watched it today. I just suddenly thought, you know, this is a you know it's a beautifully shot film. The acting's not that bad. There isn't like a you know even the pros, the professional footballers that are in it, they're all um, having a good time, obviously. And you know they deliver their lines. They're not asked to do too much. And it's just a 
it's just a really fun, warm-hearted movie, yeah. Yeah, but again, not, I'm not dissimilar to you guys, really, in that it was just always... I remember it being on VHS at my auntie's house. I had older cousins. But the thing is, it was out in 1981. I would have been five, so it would have passed me by at the age of five, I think, because it was even though it was a football mm. film, it was a war film, and I probably was watching Star Wars or whatever. And... um. But then it just it just always seems to have been there. And as much as I didn't, I haven't watched the film an incredible number of times. I have watched the film a lot. What I have watched an incredible number of times is the match at the end. A bit like <laughs> I used to when I was a kid, I would just watch the um, the fights at the end of Rocky. I would watch the match over and over and over and over again to the point at which I knew that kind of word for word, but not so much the rest of the film. But I'm kind of with you that I watched it again, expecting, and I've, I've probably not watched it for a, a few years and I've fully expected to think I'm going to laugh at this in not a good way and um and found myself not doing that really because it does it does stand up to not the greatest war films let's not be daft but it does it does stand up as a film so we'll talk about this more as we go through I think um have you got any estimates on how many times you've seen it Carrie oh goodness I would say I've watched probably Twice or three times a year since I was five. So, oh my goodness, that's a lot. I'm... <laughs> that's over a hundred times. Did you see it in the cinema? The wow. cinema? No, I'm 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 much younger than you two. Don't forget that. Um, <laughs> but um, I would have watched this on the telly um, first off. And Scott mentioning the the arm break has reminded me. My first clearest memory of watching the film with my dad is my dad saying to me, that guy's not even a goalkeeper. And that was my first memory, knowing that Kevin Callahan wasn't even a goalkeeper, but he was acting to be one. <laughs> I loved, I've, I've never met you, Dad, Carrie, but I, I'm, loving, I'm loving the picture of you with this kind of sort of smart-ass nerd watching the film going, by the way, you do know he's not even a goalkeeper. And I love that's it. That's that. absolutely my dad, smart-ass football nerd. And that's, <laughs> that's how I turned out the way I did. <laughs> Uh, my wife is a little bit older than me. She she has a memory of going to the cinema to watch it, even though she's not a huge football fan. And, and she has a, a really clear memory that they had they had a pre feature. Do you remember they used to have those? Oh and yeah, it was, yeah. And it was about Pele. They had like a ten minute feature about Pele before, and then they actually showed the film. Is a is her memory of it. So anyway, so none of us saw it in the cinema. So in terms of, I mean, I'm guessing that would have been at a time where. I mean, there obviously wasn't YouTube then, but even on TV, you didn't get sort of retro old football that much. Stuff was just played and forgotten about. You know, you'd get match of the day or the big match, and that and that was it. If you were, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old and couldn't remember Mexico 70, mm. you might never have had the chance to see it on, on, on the BBC or very few clips. So I'm sure that would have been... That would have been good fun and quite illuminating. Yeah, and I only knew Pele as a footballer through this film. I just knew that he must have been brilliant when I was a kid, a little kid, because he was in this film. And then my dad would tell me how brilliant he was and, and various relatives. You know, as you say, I didn't see much of Pele playing football anywhere. He wasn't as good as Kevin O'Callaghan, obviously, but... Uh, no, certainly not on goal. Anyway. <laughs> certainly not at taking a boot to the arm, but anyway, so we'll come to that. Uh, yeah. So the the film itself was out in 1981, and I suppose the big thing about it in the first place is that it's directed by John Huston, the legendary John Huston, who directed a plethora of ridiculously legendary films like The Maltese Falcon and stuff like that. 
My question is always, and I don't, again, we don't really know. So that's, well, somebody, somebody may know. Do we know why John Huston ended up directing it? Was he simply told it was a film about a battle against the Nazis that was won? And he went, yeah, I'm in for that. And then he went, oh, what do you mean it's football sort of thing? I've got no idea. But I think he does a pretty, good, he job does a pretty good job of it. No, I yeah. think you're right. I think it's absolutely beautifully um, um, structured, I guess. The way it's all put together, the way it looks. I mean, there there are occasions where I think... That looks very, very early 80s, uh, particularly the crowd scenes. The attention to detail at, <laughs> yeah. at times is kind mm. of falling apart slightly. But um, no, I've got no idea why he took it on, but I'm really glad he did. And I think the fact that he was bringing this sort of old school sensibility to the film, because it does feel like a, a piece from sort of classic, you know, Hollywood's first golden age, that sort of post-war thing. Um, you know, it's it, it's not that different in sort of tone or narrative structure to something like Stalag 17, the Billy Wilder film. Um, and I, th- I think that's one of the reasons why. All, so, so if you were to watch a film made in the 1950s, you sort of you meet it halfway culturally. You sort of know that some of the dialogue is going to be a little bit different. The acting might be a little bit different. Certain things might to the modern palate taste a little cheesy. But, but you're prepared to go there. This is kind of a 1950s film made in 1981, and I think sometimes people don't give it that extra bit of, or they don't go to meet it in the kind of shoot because it is a, even though it's a, you know, it's made when it is. It's I, I think it's a 50s film at heart. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. It was made by interestingly, I was watching because I watched all of it and right to the end credits and everything to the end this time. Um, and it's made by the Victory Film Partnership. That's who produced it. I think Freddie Field was involved. And, of course, then I thought, well, I wonder if they made anything else. So I went and had a look, and they didn't. But what was interesting was is that the Victory Film Partnership is still active on Company's House, despite having done nothing since 1981. So there's a bit of me that's, that thinks, surely they're still in planning. For the, the little tiny part of me thinks there's a sequel coming. At some point, <laughs> they've talked it, about remaking it so many times, though, and which I find you know a grossly offensive concept, even. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was first talk about it, certainly kind of around two thousand, because I remember thinking that Colin Firth would be good in place of Michael Caine, <laughs> and there certainly has been talk in the past, kind of two or three years of a remake. So perhaps that's what they're doing, just kind of spending their time thinking of people who might be good in a remake every five years or so. There's been rumours of Tom Cruise uh, at one point being attached no, to it. Is, that would be terrible. No, of course it would. Course it. No. <laughs> Imagine him as the even more gobby in the in sort of a few good men type mode, but as a goalkeeper. As a goalkeeper. No, he's much too short. <laughs> um, would you read about the, the film itself as well? Apparently one of the biggest, well, one of the things that people had to put up with was, speaking of the goalkeeper, was Sylvester Stallone's demands. That he he turned up with bodyguards and he insisted on all kinds of stuff and he wasn't happy with John Houston and all this kind of stuff was being told numerous times. He deliberately turned up late at one point because people kept him hanging around for one day. If you look at the kind of where it fits in Stallone's filmography as well, it's 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 slap bang in between Rocky Two, then Nighthawks, then Escape to Victory, then Rocky Three, then First Blood. So he's really he's really become. The super well, he's on his way to very much being a superstar. Then, 
but obviously he hasn't he hasn't let that uh, not go to his head. It would seem in the midst of Russell Osman and everybody else. It's kind of it's one of his more um, more subtle uh, pieces, isn't it? In, in his uh, in his filmography, he, he he gets to sort of you know it's, it's that old joke about the range of emotions from A to B, <laughs> and he, in, at least he does that on this one, uh, as opposed to just being purely one note. Um, you know, because he's I'm not a huge Stallone fan on on the whole, but I I quite liked him in this movie. I think he he doesn't sort of over overplay it. Like there's a few, you know, he plays a few bits for laughs when it's obvious that he's, you know, not a soccer player. Um, yeah, you know, it could be worse. Worth worth putting up the, uh, with the tantrums for. <laughs> and he's um, and he's um, what I can never understand about that. If you go back to the kind of narrative of it, I I don't understand why Hatch is American. Because he's he makes not, a very he's Canadian. No, he makes a point no, of being American, point but he's American, crossed the border, he's crossed to, be border Canadian, to be Canadian, doesn't he? Or have I missed something? <laughs> he's supposed to be a, in one of the Canadian regiments. If that's the right, is that the right word? That's that the right is correct, word, yeah. isn't it? But he does yeah, make the point. That, that point that's, no, I think that's the idea. He's supposed to be uh, enlisted in in Canada. Yeah, but it's almost like. It, it, they have to make a point of him being actually American because he brings a certain level of American pluck or daring do or desperation to escape or something. Yeah, I mean, obviously, he pl- <laughs> I don't think he's making effort with his accent being distinguished <laughs> as Canadian or anything like that. Um, I- I'll make a massive confession here. I'd never seen any of the Rocky films until like six months ago. And oh, my oh. partner made me watch all of them, and I can't remember which one was which because, as far as I could tell, they were pretty much all the same. But um, yeah, I was actually surprised because, uh, like Scotty was saying, um, I think Stallone is—he's pretty good in this. I think maybe it's um, the direction being slightly firm-handed with him and telling him to kind of go for subtlety in some places. But I don't know, Stallone is almost believable in this. I almost have sympathy for him. That must be, to go sorry, to go back to what you just said there, Carrie, it must be, I don't understand what it must, well, maybe you can help me understand what it must be like to watch Rocky films as an adult because it's almost impossible for me and lots of adults to judge them for what they are because it's just a huge echo back to childhood for me. Did they just yeah, seem terrible to you terrible as an adult? <laughs> of terrible i mean i ended up kind of sitting here going i really like ivan drago and my partner was going he's the baddie i was going no he's the most well-written well-rounded most understandably motivated character in this entire series he's my favorite so um yeah um the one about the cold war was my favorite one because it was just so ludicrous but no it 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 was massive pantomime as far as i could tell but um i didn't like to say it out loud because as you say, um, it's a massive echo back to childhood yeah. for my partner and I didn't want to crush his dreams. <laughs> speaking of direction and speaking of John Houston, apparently one of um, Stallone's biggest bugbear that he constantly get upset about because he, don't forget, Stallone himself was a director, directed Rocky and would go on to direct numerous other things like Staying Alive, Staying Alive the follow-up to Saturday Night Fever, for example. And um, he, John Houston wasn't a very um, instructive director he basically would kind of say, well, if you've cast it right, you don't need to direct them much, which Stallone didn't really get on with and Kane kind of rolled with. And that must have been very, very difficult for professional footballers. He just turned up and didn't get much direction 
from this legend. And yet he did seem to catch, and in some ways he did manage to capture the spirit of a football game on footballers, I think. Scott, what do you reckon? Well, you just mentioned the sort of lack of direction to these, you know, professional footballers and amateur actors. Apparently Michael Caine gave one of his famous acting masterclasses and I think it run to um, Just Say the Lines. That was it. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's distilled. That's acting distilled, isn't it? Just say the lines. <laughs> yes. And they were kind of... They have were you tried acting? Left, yeah, left to do it. But something must have worked because... And I was like sort of watching it today thinking, right, okay, there's going to be some real clunky, terrible stuff. You know, and like footballers, like, they can't... They can't deliver like one word in an advert. I always like go back to um, David Platt, where where he was um, advertising ta- uh, Tic Tacs, and he had to say what a refreshing tactic, and it was just real. Uh, uh, uh. I thought, you could, I mean, you're paying a lot of money. At least put something into it. Um, but all these guys come out with, you know, Mike Summerby, quite a few, quite a few decent lines and quips. No chambermaid in the Savoy. Yeah, I, th- I thought some of it was okay. I think the worst, the worst of the lot was um, John Walk. It's very, very hard to, to watch John Walk try to act. <laughs> Bless him. Am I right in saying that was it John Walk who got dubbed because they couldn't understand his accent? <laughs> is that true? If it is, it's brilliant. If it's true, he's still Scottish in it. I noticed, but. I th- I really think he got dubbed. So someone certainly got dubbed, and I'm sure it was John Walk. <laughs> that amazing. sounds about right, doesn't it? Yeah. And you mentioned Mike Summerby, um, and again, I think I'm right in saying he became really pally with Michael Caine, so perhaps that's why he got all the lines. <laughs> yeah, you do, you do, you, it is a question, actually. Why do so many of them get such focus? And Mike Summerby gets a lot of lines, doesn't he? Russell Osman is genuinely pretty okay. I think he he looks quite good on screen as well. Yeah, that yeah. could have been a little, little sideline for him had he wanted it. Yeah, he had. To, he does have sort of leading man looks. Uh, I was surprised at how how taken I was with him when I when I watched it today. Was Slawsman? No, can't, can't be. <laughs> I, I I sort of remember him from my Panini sticker book with like sort of hair sticking every which way. I remember him from still being playing when the first versions of Championship Manager came out. He was at Bristol City in the early 90s. So he'd still pop up as a player in Championship Manager. Wow. The other thing is um, it's, the other thing is how old so many of them are. Um, I mean, Co Prinz, the Dutch player, he'd retired in 1966 and looked like a borderline pensioner and yet was seen as one of the best players he could get from a prisoner of war camp. You do wonder, they just thought, well, just suspend disbelief, it'll be fine, people won't mind. And Michael Caine's obviously meant to be a current England international, and I think he was 47 when the film was made. And but looks again, every day goes, of it. Th- this goes back to it being directed by someone whose heyday was in the the 40s and 50s, because if you looked at like leading men back then, and they were supposed to be these womanizing hard cases, and they were all about, you know, 5'2", extremely overweight with the corset on, balding, <laughs> 20 years older, 20, 30 years older than the leading woman. So I guess they used to suspend disbelief back in the day, 
Uh, hey, well, why not? Let's just go for it now as well. And none of it's more kind of obvious. In the, when they finally get all the uh, tracksuits and they go on the first training run, if you remember that scene. when well, One thing I love about that scene is that Michael Caine repeatedly flicks the Vs at people, which you don't see in American sort of films a lot. <laughs> which, uh, um, But he's got this kind of velour track. It looks like a velour tracksuit, but it isn't. But from a distance, it looks like velour. And he's got the kind of physique and the gait and the clobber of a bloke who looks like he's going to Asda in his pyjamas. It's, and, and yet you're meant to believe he's this current England international. And obviously Bobby Moore's there. He was an actual West Ham and England defender, um, who again is pretty long in the tooth by this stage, is Terry. What do we think about the football? Gary, what do you think about the football? Oh, the, the match itself. I mean, obviously it's all choreographed by Pele, isn't it? So, mm. you know... It's quite Pele heavy, but that's kind of what you what what you would want from it. Um, I think my my actual favourite bit is watching Ozzy Ardiles because I remember him kind of playing when I was a kid, and again, this is another one of my really strong memories has just come back. I remember being insanely entertained by the fact that he gives its his full name in the credits. They call him Osvaldo, don't they? They don't mm. call him Ozzy, mm. and that was hysterical to me as a small child for some reason. <laughs> But I just love watching Ozzy Ardiles run with the ball. It's so beautiful. And that's something I never get tired of when I'm watching the match over and over again. Scott? Yeah, I, um, I would agree. I remember watching the match this afternoon. And Pele was quite generous. He let like Ardiles run most of the game. I mean, obviously Pele gets the big, the big set-piece bicycle kick at the end. But... Um, but you know, on the whole, you're thinking, yeah, this our, this our dealers looks pretty, pretty neat. I mean, you know, Russell Osman gets like a fair bit of of play as well. It's very, it's it's sort of very strange. You don't really see much of of uh, John Warwick. There's not a great deal of like, does does Linstead does he set up a goal? He might set up a goal, but um, you don't see much of him. So it's it's kind of strange who they picked to. Pick to play in all these big, these big set pieces, and they make a really. It's quite big... good. I mean, it's not, but you know, people criticise it for being a little bit slow and and sort of mannered and not looking like proper football. I mean, I don't know. I th- I thought they kind of, I, th- I thought they did a pretty good job. And you know, no one's expecting to see Gagan pressing. It's a, it's the nineteen forties. You know, <laughs> um, so you know, football was slower back then, and it it, it looked pretty good. What I like about so, sorry, it. sorry, Lee. Yeah, and on, also, it kind of fits in with um, one of the lines that Michael Caine has. He says to them when they have their one of their first training sessions, "You're in no condition to run." And so, the choreography of the match it is of mm. kind of passes. It's of kind of you know, trapping the ball on, on on the chest. It's you know playing the crosses in. It's that kind of thing rather than too much of the running heavy stuff. Yeah, it makes absolute narrative sense. And of course, Pele gets his genuine lol in that scene, doesn't he? With his, uh, I get the ball and I do this. This, 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 this goal. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, the, and speaking of Pele's acting, the bit as we come later on when when they're about to escape and it, and it's a close-up on Pele and he says, and, and Hatch, the, the Stallone character Hatch, wants to escape at half-time when they've, when they've got a goal back before half-time. And it zooms in on Pele and Pele says something like, you know, please Hatch, we cannot do this without you and we need you and we really want to play this match. And I just by the way I've said it shows how wooden it can sound. 
But he does actually sound genuine. <laughs> there is some genuine emotion that comes out of Pele at that point. Or am I over, am I just being too rose tinted on this? No, I think Pele's pretty good as well. I think he's not he's not too bad an actor at all. And yes, that scene. Um, I think also the way he delivers it. There's a certain amount of dramatic pause that he uses. It's not just he's he's not just rattling off the words. The way that he stops and he's looking, and it's kind of an imploring, an imploringness in his face as he looks at Hatch. Um, no, absolutely, it's it's a really good scene, a really good delivery. Yeah, a lot, lots of meaning in it. Going back to Ozzy Ardiles, what I've he doesn't he hardly says anything. As you say, it, that point about Mike Summerby gets a lot of talking, and Ardiles gets a lot of action, doesn't he? in the game. And you do wonder why. And I think it probably comes back to that point you just made, Carrie. He looks so lovely running with the ball, doesn't he? And I suppose that the director's eye probably goes, yeah, we'll have a bit of that, thanks. We'll just, we'll show quite a bit of that because there's a there's a, a dynamism and a movement to it that, that works really well on film. It does. The dynamism when it's kind of the, the full speed footage, but also when it's when it's slowed down and they've got the kind of little tricks and flicks, uh, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's balletic and you really notice it with the slower footage. Yeah, I think that you, exactly what you say and the fact that you've got a director who is so knowledgeable and talented and and I think that's one of the things that's a little bit underrated about this film is that Houston's obviously been able to go, right, okay, this guy is probably best. Not Let's not have him say very much. He, he'll look really good on the shots. This other bloke can like take quite a you know a few of the lines, but there's also there's never a a scene where any of the footballers have to uh, carry the entire scene or drive it. They're always just chipping in one bit. You know, come on, we can do this. We uh, you know, and it's kind of it. You know, I think that was clever not to. They don't like overplay their hand. There's you know, little one-line zingers here and there, and and that's it. So you can kind of still have that. It never. Let's put it this way: it never looks when you're on the screen when you when you're looking at any scene that this is weird. There's a screen full of professional actors and people who don't know what they're doing. It always kind of looks like it mixes properly. The other thing that works really well, I think, that he cut that Houston and the film catches really well, is the genuine football-type interactions between the players off the ball. And I don't know how much editing they had to do to get that or how much direction they actually gave or whether the players were genuinely kind of getting into it and getting wound up with each other. Because there's loads of really brilliant bits when they're sort of like, you know, shouting at each other or giving a bit of a push and a shove that looks really quite genuine, like you'd see when a game flares up on a Saturday sort of thing. At least it looks like that to me. You mentioned the slow motion stuff there, Carrie. Apparently, according to the film, according to when you read about it, it was it was quite cutting edge technology. The super slow mo thing, and it was costing thousands of pounds a minute to do it. So they could only do a certain number of takes. That's one of the big stories about Pele getting it done in one take, effectively because because he had to. But I think that that bit, you know, spoilers everybody. But the goal where he scores with the <laughs> with, with the bicycle kick. The bit where it's Bobby Moore who crosses it, isn't it? I think he says play it wide and then he crosses it. And the bit where the, where the music goes, and, and the ball floats over it. It looks absolutely amazing. Watching it again today, I was like, that shot is incredible. 
It I've... is. It's lovely, and you and you see Pele's eyes flick up towards the ball, and he's just kind of dead focused on it, and just the way he rises. Oh yeah, it's it's an amazing shot, and however much that technology cost, worth every penny. <laughs> And well, a, and also it looks—it still looks like a a real thing. If if this film was made twenty years later, there'd be loads of like Matrix-style three hundred and sixty zooms, and it'd just begin to look a bit stupid. But it's been filmed in this nice, as Carrie says, it's all like all of these football scenes—they're very balletic, um, and you know, that, I, th- I think that takes some doing. And it's, 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 it shows the impact of the game, of the film, actually, on the kind of, well, certainly my group of friends when I was a small child in Lancashire, was that the moves that you see in the film were named after then, forever named after the players that did them. So that so the overhead kick was forever known as Apele when I was growing. He scored with Apele. Was what we, I don't know if that was the same everywhere, but it certainly was where we were. And that was cut on the rainbow kick that Ardiles does in slow motion was an Ardiles flick. But was it that before the film? Was he known for that before that, Scott? I can't remember. No, I can't either. I didn't even know it was called a, a rainbow kick. So well, it, only because I, I've played FIFA that. with my son now, so I know <laughs> I, this is they've all got names. And, and the bicycle kick, which that was always mm. a Pele when I was growing up. Oh. And it was so, a lovely yeah. trick. Yes, yeah, it's, it's impossible what to do when you have as little talent as I have, of course. So, it, and I quite like the the sort of reality of this beautiful trick that he does. And then I think Russell Osman just clumps a header back up the other way. <laughs> so it's, it's been a it's completely futile trick, but um, yeah. yeah, he flicks it over, then Russell Osman chests it, then heads it forward. Just a dunk. Perfectly in time with the music, by the way. That's the whole reason it was done, I think. And yet, it works beautifully. And it is that kind of interspersed speed with slowness, which I suppose there is a bit, you know, Rocky does a bit of that in a far more brutalist sort of way. But um, it just works so very, very well. So Ardiles is very much man of the match for the Allies. Well, let's talk about the game. Or do we want to, do we want to talk about stuff? Anybody want to re- bring anything up the, before the game that tickles their fancy about this film? Before because we've gone into the game quite a bit. But anything that you know you notice or want to bring up? Bring up. There are things, but I think I'll probably come up with some of them during the game as well. So I shall I will link it all together because mostly I want to talk about Max von Sydow. To be honest. Okay. <laughs> There's just two things that I sort of spotted that were kind of harbingers of famous scenes and movies made years later that Stallone's first escape when he's clambering across the the top of the mm. the washing hut is reminds me a little bit of um of Bender's escape in the breakfast club when he's going back to get the the yes, pot that he's stuffed down Brian's trousers, that and that famous Me Too movie, <laughs> and oh, and then the bit the, the, the very iconic arm break thing, the camera pulls away, which is all very Reservoir Dogs, and I wonder if Tarantino is a is a is a fan of um of Escape mm. to Victory. I'm sure he's seen it. So. I mean, we've talked about the film a lot, and everybody who's listening to this must know what this film is, surely. But obviously, it's about a prisoner of war camp, and there are some players in there, one of which is 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 
John Colby, played by Michael Caine, who is approached by Max von Sydow's character, whose name escapes me, but Carrie probably remembers it, um, to um, have a bit of a match between the local team, the local German army, the Wehrmacht, and some people from the POW camp as a way of just having something to do and raise a bit of morale. It gets picked up by sort of the German high command, if you like, to, to become a big propaganda exercise to be played in the Stade de Colombe in, in Paris. And they're going to basically use it as a as an indication of how much they can crush these their enemies once again. And also from the other side, it gets picked up as an opportunity, one as an embarrassment that would either be involved in it from the Allied side and that, that it could be an opportunity to engage the French resistance and escape. So that's why Stallone escapes to then go and get linked with the resistance to sort out a plan so they all escape at half-time from the stadium in Paris, which is not actually in Paris because the whole game was filmed in Hungary, because I think it was the only place they could find a stadium with no floodlights, uh, apparently. Um, and Which is another reason why when they were filming everything, everyone just got drunk most of the time because Hungary was such a miserable t- place to be in 1981, according to Michael Caine. So that's the kind of basis of the story. So that's how it starts. And and, and very early on, it starts with Max von Sydow's character giving himself away as a former German international carrier, I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So he, von Steiner, which is Max von Sydow's character, um, meets with Colby and they realise they've met before uh, in an international match when von Steiner was playing for Germany and Colby was playing for England. And so on, on it goes and there's like loads of sort of archetypal war movie type stuff and incredibly stuffy British command structure in the POW camp. Tim Piggott Smith playing, well, a posh arsehole, really, which is this kind of stock in trade for the rest of his career, it would seem, but that's what he does. Also, the colonel in the camp constantly wearing big cardigans and a cravat is something I have a lot of time for. Um, I don't know if that was standard issue when you were in a, in a POW camp back then. And so they build up the team, and Michael Caine insists on pulling in, you know, give us a fair chance, I need food, I need gear, and which is all granted, and you have to give me lots of players that I want, and that's when people like Co-Prince and, and, and John Walk and Russell Osman comes in. And there's, there's, the, Russell Osman's first bit of dialogue, I think, is when he's, he's, he's an RAF man in his uniform, and he's eat, he played for Ipswich at the time, but he was an Ipswich player, and he's eating, and he... And he his first line of delivers is something like, well, I don't know how you've done it, but thank you anyway, as he's eating. And it's really, really well delivered, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's, the, it's their first meal, isn't it, as a team? And um, Michael Caine's giving them their little pep talk, and yeah, they don't care what he's actually saying. They're concentrating <laughs> on the food, and that's what that line's <laughs> reflecting. Um, and then there's the big thing about how he insists on having Polish and Czech players, Michael Caine, and brings them in. Um, and when they turn up, obviously, they're kind of haunted shadows and skeletons of, of, of people. And everyone's very ups- and, and everyone's kind of terribly upset that they've even been brought to the camp because I don't know it's too upsetting. The interesting thing about that is that is that he brings them in and, and he makes a big point of bringing them in. Then none of them actually play, or does one of them play? I can't remember. I have no idea about that. <laughs> I can't believe it's Casimir Dana was the one who, who came in with them as well. But I suppose it was a way of demonstrating, even in this sort of slightly. You don't see you don't see the worst of Nazism in this film, do you? Let's be honest. It is it is a little bit of a they're all humans as well, and we can be nice about them. Really, that trying to show a different side, mostly of them, I think. But then I suppose there was a bit of let's just interject it. Let's not forget that this is what they were also doing. Or am I, or am I looking too much into that? No, 
Well, I think yeah. no, obviously you're right. Obviously, you know it, it's a it's a very sanitized film in that obviously they wanted it to have you know a wide release to be watched by kids, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they are going to downplay things, but. I guess if you're watching with you know a reasonable amount of background knowledge, you know where those Eastern European players have come from. They come from a concentration camp. You know, um, von Steiner says says to Colby, um, I think his words are, um, they don't exist, and you know you know what's happened to them. They're lucky to have escaped, and obviously the players, the Allied squad, have huge sympathy for them, and they're just looking at them, trying to feed them up. Yeah, they can't have them in the quarters because of the lice. Uh, you know, the physical condition is terrible, and we know why that is. Watching it, I guess in 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 an odd way, it's a bit like that scene Scott was talking about with, with the arm break because the camera cuts away. Your mind fills in the rest of it. You haven't got to have it actually spell out to you because the horrors that they have gone through are already there in your mind. And and that and it also helps to then paint a picture of the kind of character that Michael that, that John Colby as a Kane's playing because he's effectively told by his colonel shut this game down because this is ridiculous and an embarrassment and this is going to show us all up and I can't believe any British officers would be involved in it at which point Kane then effectively says if I shut this down they're going to get sent back to a labour camp and I'm not going to do it and there's a really nice scene where he says to the team I can't force you to disobey orders but I'm I'm telling you I'm not calling this game off so you can leave if you don't want to play and of course everybody decides to play and that's actually a really nice scene I thought yeah and it, it, it as Carrie says it addresses the elephant in the room and of course this isn't a film about the the holocaust but the fact that there's at least a nod to that existence and that reality. I think they sort of had to do that. I mean, especially seeing that, um, you know, the film is very, very loosely based on the FC Start legend in 1942. The death match, when the uh, the Germans set up a team uh, to, mm. to play, you know, the Ukrainians and they defiantly won the game and of course there was no happy ending they all they all, all pretty much got um got killed or maybe half the team got killed or something yeah it's a um, funny one that i've read the i've read the, the, the book dynamo which was about that because it which is effectively it's it's the ex-dynamo kiev team in the ukraine during the occupation we're all working in forced labor factories basically and ended up playing football against I think it was a Luftwaffe team and they played against a number of teams and kept winning even though they were on kind of starvation rations and all that kind of stuff and then it all according to legend culminated in a death match where basically said if you if you if you don't lose this game we're going to kill you all I think I think that bit of the history's had some doubt thrown on it now because it seems that a few of them did die but it was over the next year or two probably because mm. of the horrendous stuff they were being put through generally which is no better but it wasn't a kind of you're all being shot by a firing squad the day after. Um, and that was the kind of kernel, I think, of, of the story. But it's, if, you, if you haven't read the book Dynamo, I don't, I don't know if there's a more recent history than that. That was probably out about 15 years ago, that book. It's it's worth a read, and it is, because even if you take the deathmatch thing out of it, the fact that these players who were, as you say, on as I said, on starvation rations and experiencing a living hell could then still come out and be, you know, effectively trained professionals from the German side is still quite the story and, and what that all means in terms of wrapping up in your, your national consciousness and your defiance and all that kind of stuff is a 
is still a remarkable story, even if you take the deathmatch thing out. It doesn't need that to be a remarkable story anyway. Has anybody else, have either of you read that book? I haven't, but I mean, but that's the thing. It's uh, it's the kernel of truth that's important as opposed to the details. I mean, it's the it's the man who shot Liberty Valance, isn't it? It's, you know, don't print the truth, print the legend. Hmm. And it's, an as you say, it's an important story Whatever actually transpired, it it tells a greater truth, and it's it's illustrative of of what happened. You know, and this, and I think you can make that claim for Escape to Victory as well. It's obviously a a nicer telling of the, of the story. You know, it's got a nice Hollywood ending, um, but it's still, you know, it's it's not a pleasant watch all the way through. It's like it can, you know, you know, these people are suffering. So that's the kernel of it. Stephen, uh, Stephen, Sylvester Stallone is in there, as we've already mentioned, this American, strangely Canadian man who's trying to escape the whole time. And he gets told that he's got to go and find the resistance and see if we can find a way to let this team escape. Um, out he goes. He engages in, I think when in your piece, Scott, you describe it as the least suspenseful escape that anyone's ever seen in that there's, he doesn't seem to, you know, it's there's not much, well, I don't know, that's your view. Is you, do, do you think there's much kind of danger and suspense in the escape, Carrie, when you watch it now? There's not a huge amount of peril, is there? You know, he's not, nothing's <laughs> going to happen to him. So, yeah, no, but that's not really the point of it, I suppose. No. And then he goes out because he's Sylvester Stallone, he gets the chance to pick himself a woman up, I suppose, to use the uh, the parlance of the time. Um and he meets and he gets with the resistance, and then they make a plan to. He, he has to break back in effectively into prison, get himself captured, and um, and then they have the plan that they go and play the game. But at half time, they will escape via a sewer underneath the changing room, which must have taken some unbelievable amount of engineering in a very short time for the French resistance, because to measure where you are underground in a sewer is quite a feat, I imagine. But uh, as I said, that's not the only thing you have to suspend disbelief about in this film, as we said before. So, uh, so that's that's what happened <laughs> throughout all of this. Um, obviously, and obviously, in the midst of Stallone escaping, there's a threat to the entire game being called off. And Max von Sydow, you wanted to talk about Max von Sydow, Carrie. Any in particular is what is it? Is a character? His performance? His performance, really, because I guess again, when I first watched it, I didn't quite realise kind of the stature of an actor like Max von Sydow. And obviously watching it as an adult or kind of thinking of it as an adult, you think, you know, Escape to Victory is this kind of joke film. What's Max van Sydow doing there? He must be short of money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Watching it back recently, I just think his performance in this is so good because he doesn't send it up at all. He's never, ever thinking, you know, this is just some kind of corny football film. He plays it with such thought, I guess, that you can really really appreciate the detail that he's putting in you know von steiner yes he's supposed to be in inverted commas the nice nazi he's not really a nazi he's just a footballer kind of obeying orders <laughs> but you can kind of tell that you know he's got that undercurrent of like uh thinking about his decisions he's conflicted he's kind of torn between you know be- believing kind of colby's line of things because he's a fellow footballer and obeying the orders that he's being given you know and you see that kind of all in one shot when he realizes that the referee has been paid to throw this match because he doesn't know about it he finds out at kickoff 
and everything you need to know about Max von Sydow as an actor and Steiner as a character is in that one shot as you see everything just flick across his face. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's, it's a really good point about the fact that he could have phoned in the nice Nazi, couldn't he? But that, that point oh, absolutely. about the, 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 min, the minutiae of his acting and his face, in lots of scenes actually comes across, but that one is, as you said, um, a wonderful moment. It could have been an absolute caricature of performance. They could have got anybody in to deliver a lot of the lines that he's got are reasonably hackneyed, to be honest. I mean, it's not the it's not the best dialogue for the character, but the way Von Sydow works with it makes it so much better. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with every word of that. And um, even little things like, you know, there's that very broad moment at the end where... Pele scores his goal and he he gets up and applauds. Okay, that's that. But but the rest of when he's watching the game, you can tell that he, you know, he's supporting Germany. He's a football fan. He wants his team to win. So there is always that conflict. But it's not as Carrie says. It's not just saying, hey, he's he's the nice Nazi, good Nazi. He's sort of, you know, secretly rooting for the allies. He's kind of doing both. And I saw, when I was watching, I was thinking, yeah, you know, I, I do think there was a satisfaction when Germany went four up. <laughs> that he, you know, he was enjoying watching it. It was, a, it was a good thing he would, you know, otherwise he wouldn't have asked for the match to be played in the first place, I guess. So the match happens and, and the, the arm break scene, for those who don't know, again, but again, and you must do if you if you if you listen to this, but... Is that they have to get Sylvester Stallone into the football team because he's been put in the cooler after his escape, but they need him for the escape. Therefore, they have to get him out. So effectively, they have to say he's the goalkeeper now. And there's a very forced scene earlier in the film where he becomes the goalkeeper by catching a ball above his head and punching a couple of balls away in a way that you would never want anybody who's meant to be a goalkeeper to do ever at all. But yet they go, you're not bad at It's like, what are you watching? Because to me, it looks terrible. Gordon Banks apparently was coaching him in this, in this film, which shows you either how terrible a coach Gordon Banks turned out to be, or that Stallone was impervious to coaching, I would guess. But, um, so that's what that is. So he ends. So that's why they have to break poor Kevin O'Callaghan's um, arm. So not only is he a winger playing in goal, he then gets his arm broken, as, as somebody said before. And and his name's misspelled in the closing credits. Oh, it is, it isn't is. it? <laughs> so so nothing nothing goes right for the poor lad. For this entire. I really enterprise. hope he got paid a lot for this film. He really did suffer. <laughs> he helped a lot with the choreography. Apparently, Pele kind of set them out, and Callahan had to kind of. Pelle had the grand ideas. I think Callan had to translate them into where people stood and moved and stuff. Apparently, huh. so he had a bit to do. But then he did get called Kevin or Callohan, didn't he? At the end, instead of Callahan, that was what it was. Um, so he ends up in the goal. So you end up having this game against you know the most tightly and well prepared Nazi German international team versus POW allies with an American who can't play in goal in goal. Now, according to one of the history, one history I read, Stallone, being the the kind of big cheese in the film as he was at the time, insisted on scoring the winning goal and had to have to explain to him that that's not how this works because you're a goalkeeper. And apparently, the, the the penalty scene at the end, which we'll come to, was was hastily added on to keep him happy. Apparently, um, and it, it, then that made me think. Well, what would? Can you imagine what the film would have been like without that scene? Would it have been a lesser film? Would it have been worse? Does that scene make the film? 
What do you think, Harry? Yeah, I, I also have heard that story. Um, I actually think, I don't know, obviously Sloane is a terrible goalkeeper, but you can you can almost buy him as a decent shot stopper. I could believe him saving a penalty just because he clearly has no fear. That's that's why Hatch is a, it turns out to be a good goalkeeper because he's willing to put his head in and get kicked and stuff. And the way that he dies to save that uh, penalty under pressure, um, that's, again, it's that kind of moment of stillness. It's the moment of silence. None of this is at slow motion beforehand. It's all just very, very quiet. It's silent in the stands. Everyone knows what this means. And that bit where Stallone stares the penalty taker down as well. Um, yeah, I love that. I love this whole film. I'm just going to witter for hours about this. I'm so sorry. He loves a two-footed tackle, Stallone, in goal, by the way. The number of times he comes out flying with both feet at the, into about 10 men like a bowling ball is a... It's quite the thing. But again, as you said, Scott, different time then, wasn't it? Was a two-footed tackle even something that would be re- remarked on in 1941, whatever year it was it was meant to be? Yeah, well, exactly. There was quite a few hard tackles in there. I think the, I think the film absolutely needed that, um, that final penalty scene. Um, it would have been a bit too... It would have been a bit too cute if it ended with Pele's overhead kick. And but also the strange thing is, and it's kind of even stranger when you're saying that Stallone wanted to score the winning goal. Um, but in the film, he's he's celebrating a four-all draw, and we're you know the old thing is Americans are not supposed to understand the value of draws in in you know British sport, football, cricket, all that. They you know they need a they need a winner, and this game doesn't have a winner. The, uh, the game doesn't even end. Um, Abandoned, just before full time, pitch invasion. So the beginning of the game, then out the players come, um, and one thing watching again now because I didn't think about this as a kid, but watching again, I'm fascinated by the, the by the Nazi commentator with the poshest English accent you've ever heard. Who who was he, and where would they have found him? It's like he's Diana Mitford's uncle or something. I don't know. It's really strange. Oh. I've always assumed he's like a Lord Hawhaw character. <laughs> it, he's 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 doing essentially kind of propaganda to to English listeners. He must be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that as well. This sort of weird mix of Lord Hawhaw and Kenneth Wilsonholm, <laughs> which <laughs> kind of works. And and the after the first goal that the Germans score, the and listen to that applause scene. Still never yeah. fails to raise a smile as he turns up the, you know, the, the clapping track that he's got next to him. And then they, they pan to the crowd who look absolutely desolate and totally silent. It's a wonderful <laughs> moment. But apparently he was a German actor whose like voice didn't make it as far as the movie. It was He was dubbed. Oh, right. So, so I can't quite work out they were trying to do because like Carrie when I watched that I was just th- thinking exactly that he's a uh, he's Lord Haw you know this is being transmitted back to the UK for propaganda purposes and the chances are Germany are going to win this quite easily um it's it, that seemed clear to me but then it's sort of all the fact that it, it, it's, it's a German guy that's been cast and then overdubbed. I bet it's just it's just odd. 
Well, but it's another one of those well, odd things that you don't pick up necessarily all the time. Um, and it's one of my little bugbears because if if they are if if that guy is German, he should be speaking German for a German audience because that is what has happened earlier in the film. We've got them speaking German to each other, the Nazi officers, hmm. and we get English subtitles. So if that commentator is German talking for a German audience, he should be hmm. speaking in German. I mean, they haven't thought this through at all, have they? Oh, well, that's what's clear about it. <laughs> they really haven't, no. <laughs> I mean, look, it's such a good film, even in spite of all this mess they've made of it. But uh, the um, so the film and obviously the Germans, it, it becomes it becomes a very typical sports film. Does in my view, when the when when the game starts, is that fair to say? If you can put other things aside, it becomes a very typical sports film. Yeah, but in the sense that everything goes incredibly badly, it becomes a true underdog story. You know, it's yeah for the team that we're the team that we're rooting for and uh, it, who eventually turn it round. And they rush to yeah, us. Go on, Carrie, sorry. Go on, Carrie, sorry. but also I don't know. It's also not a typical sports film in that. Obviously, when the match starts, we start to kind of see kind of some some underhanded tricks. So we already know about the bent referee. We've got those kind of little slide jabs into Pelly's rib cage, for example. But also, you're saying it's an underdog story, as you just said. They, the team we're rooting for don't win. They get a four-four draw and then they escape. That's not a typical sports film. Yeah, that is true. No, come the end, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. And, and and I guess especially at the time, you're used to seeing. Uh, you know, the sports figure that you want to prevail, they do actually win the win the match at the end. Because um, the first time, I mean, I'm sure there's like a, a lot of examples I'm just not too sure of, but the first time in a sort of big Hollywood feel-good movie that the, the guy didn't win that I remember was Tin Cup, where you're thinking, oh, okay, Kevin Costner is going to win the US Open, and then he just keeps dumping balls into the into the pond um so yeah in that sense i think this is quite ahead of its time yeah and rocky didn't win a course either did he, in the first one that all got sorted out of course by the second one and ever since but it's <laughs> um yeah but i think in terms of what i mean is that, that first half looks like a typical sports film before i think as you quite rightly point out carrie it becomes something very very different afterwards um so so they rush to a four nil lead because there's a, a lovely bit. Yeah. Sorry to just um, just just before you go past four and L when they go four and L down. For me, is one of the best bits in the film when Michael Caine goes off on one to Stallone, and he tells him to you know stay on your bloody line, <laughs> and it's exactly the same delivery and cadence as you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> and I don't know whether that was some sort of you know whether that was his stock delivery. Uh, or some sort of callback to it, but it's it was just a beautiful moment. I think it's 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 easy to forget as well now because Michael Caine definitely had a late career renaissance as being this fantastic actor he's regarded as now. He he was seen as a joke is too strong a word, but he wasn't seen as what he is now in 1981, was he? You know, this is I think the the films he was doing around this time, when you look at it, are, you know. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and The Island and and dodgy horror film horror films like The Hand, 
and it would be another couple of years before he did educating Rita and stuff. I think he's never made any secret of the fact that he'll just he he did rep for so long he'd take any job that paid because he remembers having no money at all. But um, it certainly seems for me the past 10, 15 years Kane's become a bit of a a, a very much a legendary actor with lots of respected roles. But that wasn't the case in the eighties. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether part of it is to do as, as you mentioned. He's kind of at a kind of an an odd age at that point. I think in, t- in terms of being a, being a leading man. So, yes, had he been around in the 40s, he might have had plenty of great roles that he would have suited <laughs> and been given absolute carte blanche to do whatever he liked with it. But, um, yeah, kind of early 80s, not so much. But in the, as you say, the past 10, 15 years, he's become this kind of uh, character actor, hugely respected one. And I'm kind of thinking of his turning Miss Congeniality now. I mean, who would have thought that John Colby would have done that? <laughs> one of my best films in a moment's lines in a film ever is... is... Michael Caine in that where he talks about where he's only lost once at a beauty party and he says and that was to a deaf mute and you can't compete <laughs> with that <laughs> um, anyway so I don't know why I've got such a strong memory of miscongeniality but there you go um, so they run out to a 4 nil lead and it all looks like it's becoming very very bad and it, it's at this point that Pele a co-prince goes down under a horrendous tackle and also probably because he's about 70 and needs to go off anyway but he goes goes down under an horrendous tackle, and then Pele goes down in what looks like a proper proper horrible tackle, and he didn't seem to have a stunt double for it either. He kind of gets sandwiched between two players and almost has like a three sixty degree spin whilst horizontal with the ground. You do wonder if he actually genuinely hurt himself doing it because it looks like he did. And off he yeah, goes. This is one yeah, of the, sorry, this is one of the bits where I think they do overplay it a little bit because you have the music come in and yeah. you have the cut yeah. to the dun, crowd dun, dun. and everyone's looking horrified and thinking, yeah, this is where you could have just dialed it down just a, a, a little bit. We don't need that. But yes, it is a dramatic moment. And as he's walking off the field, there's a very long look over his shoulder like he's watching oh, his children goodness, being so taken away. Oh, my goodness. Um. And it's, the interesting thing at this point is that Michael Caine, John Colby, the character then says, we'll go to 10 men. And is that because he, well, I suppose it's because Pelly has to come back on, but I suppose you have to think then that John Colby, or is there only one substitute allowed back then? I got myself down a right rules rabbit hole at this point because a sub had come on for Co-Prince going off and then Pelly goes off. He says, all right, we'll play with 10 men. I was like, well, hang on, have you got no subs left then? Or is it that you're yeah, genuinely it so good you want to... Oh, right, okay. Which We'd is, have to check the years, but I'm fairly sure there's still one sub only for injury. Well, I just wonder even if it was if there was no subs. Because well, the, definitely the, comes on the, for co definitely. You didn't have subs in the World Cup until 1970. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, the, you know, the, in German, in the, well, there wasn't even a Bundesliga back then, was there? <laughs> Where the, Whatever the German league was at that time, maybe um, they had substitutes. I doubt it somehow. I don't maybe know. Maybe someone I got can com- check the German football rulebook for us and let us <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. If yeah. there's one that's existing from the Nazi league of 1940 <laughs> yeah. or something. Please help. The, um, yeah, so he goes, obviously, it's obviously also a dramatic device, so he can come back on later, isn't it, and play with his, well, is it broken ribs he's meant to have? I'm guessing, I've always assumed that's what it is. Yes, ribs, 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 ribs. Yes, yeah. And come on and do it and do his Pele thing. But then just before halftime, the, the, the Allies score a goal to bring it back to 4-1. And this is crucial for what happens next. 
because then they go into the dressing room. Uh, the the resistance arrive by breaking in under the big bath, and all the water drains out of it, and it's time to go. So as they all start to escape, I think it's Russell Osman who says brilliantly with his Derbyshire accent, says, "Where are you going? We've got a chance." And, St- <laughs> and Stallone responds with, "Chance, my ass." And then, and, and, and again, it's like this brilliant clash of like Hollywood superstar and Russell Osman. And it's that little germ of Osman saying, "We've got a chance." That seems to the catalyst of everything that comes afterwards around, you know, why we go and we can win this, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's a fairly shambolic halftime team talk. <laughs> it's you know, it's right up there with like Benitez. Uh, Istanbul, trying to send them out with twelve players or something. It's in. <laughs> it's that bad. It's that bad. But they decide to come out, so you know, all's well that ends well. The worst line delivery of that is is actually Michael Caine. So he's going, "What do you mean we can win this? <laughs> <laughs> what, what he just said, obviously." Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's and, and there is that thing around. Is it believable? You know, is it believable? I've often t- t- gone over this in my head. Is it believable that a group of men who were prisoners of war would choose to go back and not escape because they thought they could win a football match? Which comes back to, I suppose, the F- the FC Start Dynamo legend about, well, actually, you know what you you know what may happen to you, but you'll do it anyway. And I like to think that yes, we would, but I'm probably being too romantic. What do you think, Gary? Yeah, I mean, you know, the line is in there. Um, he says, please hatch. If we go now, we lose more than just a game. Oh. And that just kind of summarises the footballer mentality, I guess. <laughs> so back out they go, and don't forget they're playing with 10 men now. And there's a very big, like, um, shock response from the, from the British high command in the in the stadium as they come walking back <laughs> I love out. that, his face. Yeah. <laughs> um, and out they come again. And don't forget, they're playing with 10 men at this point and then start to absolutely kick the Germans behind for the best part of, of half an hour and bring it back to, to 4-3. With some lovely goals, actually. Is it, is it Ardiles' goals? A particularly nice one. Oh, it's beautiful. And he ju- and when he scores, he, he's, he, he, he runs and weaves and scores, then jumps really high with both arms in the air. Sort of little Aussie Ardiles. It's a lovely scene. Yeah, um, he actually talked about this on Twitter not too long ago because someone was saying, what do you remember about it? And he said, it's the best goal I ever scored. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, beautiful. There was some good football played in that half, though. I mean, there was a couple of moves. There's one for the disallowed goal. Mm. And there's one, uh, I I think it... Yes, it's the move for the for Pele's equaliser. Um, but you're just thinking, you know, if like Man City were stroking it around like this, or or if Liverpool were going like hell for leather and pushing forward, and all these players running around nice little triangles, you know, that's uh, you know, it's nice football. And the footballs, the more I think about it, the more the footballs, the actual action, is um has been sort of unfairly traduced, I think, over time. Yeah, I grabbed. I've never watching it again as well because you do think you're going to watch it again with a slightly critical eye. And, and there are some moments that are a bit. The first half, in a way, all the German goals are kind of terrible in in a way. But uh, then when you watch the Allied ones in the second half, the football. You say the football is 
is very, very good. I feel so... Ardiles was nailed on for uh, Man of the Match, by the way, for the um, for the Allies until his ridiculous tackle for that penalty at the end. One, what are you <laughs> doing back there? Carlos, as his, as his name is in the thing. And what the hell are you doing? It was a tired tackle, that, though. Like you say, Carrie, going back to what he said before, you haven't got the ta- they haven't got the energy to be running around. And at that stage of the game, it was a tired tackle. Pele scores the goal. It's 4-4. And then we come to the great penalty that I've just discussed. It, ironically, it, the, ref was, the ref was, you know, as we say, completely bent and paid off. But ironically, that was an incredible uh, stonewall penalty because it was a horrendous tackle. <laughs> so that was probably the only legitimate decision the ref made in the whole game. Yeah, he, he can have no, um, no arguments about that one. And the only other thing I think that clangs from a timing point of view is how much the players are arguing with the referee. I don't think that would have happened in 1940, even in uh, you know stakes as high as them. Yeah, you might have a point there. The, the only other thing, now that I come to think about it, that's that sort of doesn't sit completely right. Like, of course, Stallone has to save the penalty at the end. Of course, he does. But he was at fault for all four goals in the first half. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm saying he wouldn't have had the. I'm saying his confidence would have been shot to bits by then. He was the David he James of the POW uh, yeah. team, Scott. Yeah. Um, yeah, he he, he had a, it was a very much a game of two halves. <laughs> but then why. also you've got that bit of half time, haven't you? When um, Hatch is saying, "Yeah, we've got to go. We can't win this with me in goal." <laughs> then they're all going, "No, you're not that bad, Hatch." <laughs> Again, the Jacob, that was like David James in the Spice Boys period. You're not that bad, David. Don't worry. I know you're throwing three goals in the net, but don't worry about it. Well, you know, if you're going to compare him to David James, at least alone when he was letting them in, didn't sit on his ass grinning like an idiot, <laughs> pretending that it wasn't his fault. <laughs> Fucking David James. Start so, me on him. See, this is a happy podcast, Scott. I'm sorry I took you back there. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, so the penalty is saved. Um, the absolute pandemonium. Fantastic soundtrack kicks in. Stallone is kind of spinning round and waving his arms up in the air like a whirling dervish. And then the the crowd invade, which I'm, and I must say, the security the Nazis have put on was was pretty lax. They didn't seem to have enough men at all for a gathering of that size. They had a pe- not enough people, but they all did have guns that they did not oh, that's, use. That's a good. Point. <laughs> yeah, you would do that. You wouldn't have had qualms about that. You wouldn't have thought, would you? Not so much. It's the bit that always kind of. Yeah, jars slightly. I can happily suspend disbelief the whole rest of it, but when you're seeing your Nazi guards patrolling the perimeter of the pitch and then not shooting the pitch invaders as they're trying to smuggle out all the POWs, <laughs> yeah, I can't buy it. Sorry, lads. And the bloke in the Adidas, full Adidas tracksuits would definitely have been shot for looking so odd in 1940. <laughs> so then, and they escape through the gates, don't they? And they're being covered up in, in shirts and, and, and coats and hats and stuff so, that, so nobody can see their gear and then they they open the gates and they flood out and the screen fades to blue which I've never seen in another film I don't think and the, the film ends and then it's probably still I was watching it again yesterday I still found myself that bit at the end where the, it says the players and it does all the kind of slow motion montage shots of of each player and tells you who they are while that amazing soundtrack plays it's probably one of my favourite bits of the entire film and isn't done enough in films anymore 
of what the the freeze frame each of the players. Yeah, but it's like a bit of them doing something, then it freezes and says who they are and where they're from while that brilliant soundtrack plays. Like, this is great. I want this to last for the next 10 minutes. Do the key grip like this. Do everybody like this. (laughs) They should do that more. Much in the same way that on the BBC, like at the end of every sitcom, it should say, you have been watching (laughs) before it goes through all of the all of the cast sort of mugging to camera. But, you know, you can't have everything. And there the film ends, and there is... is uh, it was a lovely way to spend a couple of hours in a lockdown uh, this weekend for me, and a nice break from work and all that kind of stuff. Um, has anyone got anything else they want to talk about Escape to Victory before we bring this thing that has gone on longer than I thought it would, actually, to a close? Oh, I just want to say I, I love this film, so thank you so much for letting me talk about it for, for well over an hour. It's been amazing. <laughs> We'll have to do it as yeah, an annual uh, thing, a lockdown Zoom party where we all watch it together or something is maybe the uh, the, the way forward. Sorry, yeah, Scott, absolutely. We could, we could maybe do Gregory's Girl next year. <laughs> so thank you very much, Scott, for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Carrie. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I hope that this slightly random podcast has, uh, has, has brought you a little bit of light relief during this difficult time for us all. And we'll speak to you all soon. We'll be back with more episodes as soon as we can. Take care. <laughs>